Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today I am joined by Tom Shepard. I'm definitely excited about this conversation because I've listened to your presentations before on, on this topic, and I know you have a lot of really valuable stuff to share, so I'm excited, excited to dive in. So before we get to that topic, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners who you are, your background, what you've done educationally, and then what you're doing professionally. First real coaching came with doing an SNC internship at University of St. Andrews. They had a program where they would give you an accreditation in response for, or in return, sorry, for coaching the football teams, soccer teams, whatever it ended up being. So my wife and I actually ended up coaching the male soccer and rugby team, as well as the women's soccer and rugby team. And also I did some stuff with the MMA guys as well. And basically the deal was that we covered their SNC sessions for a couple of years. We got the formal UKSCA training in return for that. So by the time that we finished our degrees, we had two years of SNC coaching under our belt, and we had the UKSCA accreditation um, score, which is a very difficult accreditation to get. It's very high standards. So we were very lucky that person who ran the SNC program at the university kind of did that kind of program. Because as far as I'm aware, there's really not many of them that kind of run Programs. So yeah. When I came out of university, I had a marine biology degree and a UKSCA accreditation. Marine <laughs> biology is great and it's fascinating and I love it. But getting a job in it is incredibly hard, especially what I did, which was like focusing on marine mammals and stuff like that. Tends to be like you get a three month contract and you know on the west coast of the states to do like migration studies or studies, and then you're done. Yeah. You can't really uproot your whole life back because Naomi already uh, had a regular job, if you like. So I went straight into coaching, went into being a PT. I spent the best part of seven, eight years being a PT. Second half of that period, I was also the manager of the gym that I worked at. And as we were kind of discussing before we went live, you know, it gets to the point where you're maxed out and you know, coaching back to back all day and so on and so forth. That was a great experience though, because the gym that I was a PT at was very varied. It's a, a Nuffield Health gym. So it's basically, Nuffield Health actually started off as hospitals and then they mm-hmm. created the gym chain then as well. But the gyms have kind of agreements with the hospitals and the rehab hospitals. So you end up dealing with a lot of people post-surgery and things like that in these hospitals, in these gyms, because they get free memberships as part of their surgeries and all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So early on in my PT career, it was quite interesting because I was also dealing with not just Gen Pop, but also people who are post-surgery and having specific issues. So that gave a really cool kind of grounding in those types of things and also made you work with a bit more of a variety than what you get. Something like a, a regular change in where maybe you're just dealing with the average kind of 18 to 35-year-old who just wants to get strong, get fitter. It was really varied. And then kind of about a year before I stopped working at the gym, I started working for Christian Thibodeau. So he'd been coaching me for about two years at that point. My wife and I at that point had been running a a pretty successful powerlifting team in the UK for probably three years at that point. I had been taking some of principles like the OCTS system where you focus on doing eccentric, isometric, concentric uh, methods with my powerlifting team and had really good success with it. And he was kind of keen to see 
how I was implementing it and how it was going well. That led to him wanting to take me on as part of Tiv Army. So I started as an online coach for them and I run their online coaching platform. I'm, I'm their head coach. I, wrote, I write programs for them, articles and all that type of thing. He also hooked me up with T Nation not long after I started working for him. So I started writing articles for T Nation as well, which was great. And then a couple of years on from that, so about two years ago now, Naomi, through her lifting, got a sponsorship for Elite FTS. So we went out to Elite FTS about two years ago now, met Dave Tate. We did a table talk podcast. And since then, our connection with Elite FTS has kind of grown to the point now where Naomi and I are both Elite FTS coaches. Um, made a lot of content for them over the last couple of years. They have like an inner circle Discord group where coaches on there, like we are for Tip Army. And uh, hopefully in October, ending our successful visa, we're going to be moving over to Ohio to be a more full-time capacity for them in terms of making educational content and helping them run events and seminars and webinars and all these wonderful ideas that we've kind of cooked up together. So I've been very lucky in that I've gotten to work with two very um, well-renowned, but also very respectful and helpful individuals and Dave Tay and Chris Thibodeau. They've kind of mentored me along the way, but also allowed me to have a platform, if you like, where I can kind of spread my own wings as it were. So I'm very grateful to those people for that. And that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm working for Tiv Army and Elite FTS, as, as is my wife. And, you know, it's been after, you know, it was kind of like maybe the first five, six, seven years, kind of just working in the gym and it almost feels like a bit stale. And then over the last <laughs> three or four years, it's really kind of taken off. Obviously, last year we met the Swiss, so I got to present the Swiss yep. posing last year. That was a, a really cool kind of life event to achieve. And I got an invite back, so I obviously didn't try hard enough to scare everyone away. So I'll, <laughs> I'll be there again presenting this year, which I'm really looking forward to. That was actually, a, from a professional standpoint and just a life standpoint, that was a really high, a big highlight for me. That was very cool. Yeah, I didn't present, but it was, it was similar for me. That conference was almost was like a return to my roots, so to speak, because, you know, I came up in strength and conditioning in the mid-2000s, 2010s, and almost my entire education was based off of those guys, Dave Tate, Jim Wendler. You know, I re- still remember watching the Elite FTS Exercise Index DVD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And we had to, you know, we had to learn every variation. What are the coaching points? How do you teach it? And then we got tested on it. We had to watch, you know, the Dave Tate box squat videos. I don't, you probably would be one of the few people who maybe remember or have seen this, the Christian Thibodeau cluster training. Oh, yeah. That was part of our curriculum. And I, and so, but then, you know, I don't have, I, I was expecting my my it's actually like it's in it's a I framed it it's in like but then you know as I got deeper like more into the sports performance you know things have changed in the last 10 years or so and then there's a little separation there but then I, I went back to them like, oh my gosh it was such a it was fun it was great to be back in that kind of world again and then yeah obviously you and I got to meet so, you know, you could almost say your career as of late has risen like a phoenix. Would yeah, that be? Yeah. Well said. <laughs> Good plug. I was better at it than I am, so I'm just going to leave you to it. 
So if everyone's like, Corey, what are you talking about? Phoenix Performance is the name of your personal coaching business, yes. right? I'm, yes. Well, I'm under on Instagram. Yeah. Yes. We spend nowhere near enough time on that now with all the stuff we do. Yeah, you have a lot going on. I mean, it's hard, bad problems to have, right? So for sure. Yeah, because another thing that you you do is you write like you are you're an educator, you're a prolific writer. And, you know, another way that you and I have interacted over the past you know, year plus is the book that by the time this episode drops, will probably be on shelves in the overload system for strength Absolutely that not. you co-authored with Christian. Yeah. I mean, that was a really cool project. Christian just emailed me one day and was like, do you want to write a book about this? Sure. I mean, got nothing else to do. Let's go. And then literally like three weeks later, emailed me his entire part of the book. He was like, my yeah. done. When was I was like, what the f***? Please. <laughs> But that's what he's like, man. He's like, boom, done, yeah. done with it. So my section was all about the how you perform the main lifts that are involved in the, in the book, how you perform all the assistance exercises and all that type of thing, which is a big part of why I say is my wheel hires, if you like. But to actually sit down and put down on paper exactly what you think a back squat should be and how it should like, it's really interesting because it makes you understand it better because you know, if you get a lot of coaches like in a room, you could all watch a squat and agree whether it's a good or a bad squat. But it, they might find it really hard to actually verbalize what exactly makes it a squat. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, what are the actual factors involved in that being a bad squat versus that one? So you have to really drill down then to like the fundamentals of the movement pattern and be like, what is the checklist that we want to see achieved with all these things? And then how do you make a blueprint for it that is rigid enough that it gives people a good structure to work with, but also flexible enough that you're not trying to make everyone do it the exact same way, which obviously won't work. So it was from just my own kind of, my own learning, it was actually a cool project and I, it kind of made me understand what I've been teaching better anyway, and maybe put together a better way of putting it forward to people in seminars and coaching sessions or whatever it might be. So just from that point alone, it was a great thing to do. But it's going to be so great to see that finally in existence when you sent me yep. all the screenshot or whatever of it up on the human kinetics or so I was like, it exists. Mike. Yes. <laughs> For a while, it, it is out feels there. like you're putting all this work into something that's just out there in the ether. And then all of a sudden you're like, it's <laughs> webpage. Yes, there's a web page. There will soon be a physical copy. Absolutely. So that, that was a really cool um, project. And I appreciate your yeah. work on that. And obviously everyone else at Human Connects, you had a, an input on it as well. But it's, it's been really cool to see that come together. Yeah, it, it has been awesome. And I, I, I 100% know what you're saying with, with the writing thing because it is, it is a, it's a totally different mindset. You've got to organize your thoughts in a different way than when you're coaching someone face-to-face -face or when you're leading a seminar or when people can see you or when you can show somebody something. It's like when you're writing and you're writing about technique or how to do something, you have to make sure you're communicating in a way that someone who cannot physically see you or watch you or maybe they, like in the book, they'll have pictures, but they're only going by the pictures and then the description. 
can they do what you want them to do? Like that is a completely different mindset and way you need to organize your thoughts. But like you said, it, it makes you better at the other things too. Yeah, it really does. It makes you a better presenter. The fact you have to think through things in that way. And then from a writing perspective, you also have to make sure it's somewhat enjoyable. To read. I mean, so, you know, like you talked yeah. about hand basement on the bars, like it can get trapped. <laughs> if you're not, if you're yep. not careful. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm a technique nerd. That's why I've kind of gravitated towards maybe specializing in the stuff that I do. But very few other people are technique nerds. So you have to remember your target audience, right? Like you could drill down into this, but they don't. That might give them some marginal returns on understanding why, but is it really that important for yeah. double mm-hmm. of your section, you know? But it does help you be able to put it across in different ways as well. And for me, it actually simplified the teaching process afterwards. Because mm-hmm. once you created that blueprint for each lift in the books, I'd never actually sat down before and been asked to write an article on like how do you squat? So mm-hmm. once I actually did that, I was like, you know what, there are really like maybe five or six key things that you look for in, say, a back squat, just for an example, that if all those boxes are checked, you're probably 90 plus percent of the way there. You know, and then it's just a case right. of what you to achieve those. But it, it was nice in my head, at least, to now have a structured system where, like, is the bar over the midfoot? Is the kneecap aligned with the mid-toe? So on and so forth. Is the spine staying neutral? Does the forearm, the upper arm, the elbow move during the descent? All those are just things now that can be ticked off and you're like, well, okay, if none of those boxes are ticked, let's just go through them one by one. Stick. And then yeah. most of the time you end up with a pretty pretty good squat at the end of it. And, you know, I'm, I like the word, it's not too my own word, but I like what I put down in that book in that I think it's going to be applicable to the vast majority of people. Like, I think most people will take that information and implement it regardless of their body type and their injury history or maybe their the level of educational training history. They're all going to be able to read it and get what they need. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, the whole concept of the book is how do you adapt the training methods utilized by kind of the pre this pre-steroid era group of lifters that still managed to get insanely strong yeah, i mean and it's crazy actually in that some of these people that we're talking about so like you know like louis sir and paul anderson and peoples for example you know some of the lifts that they were doing would be elite or more by today's standard but then it's not just the, the lifts that they were achieving it's what their day-to-day life was like whilst they're doing them you know what i mean like a lot of these guys who were, who were <laughs> yeah his time and doing lifts that still think whoa uh, now they were working on farms 12 hours a day or they were working in factories like six days a week for crazy shifts you know half of their diet was probably bread mm-hmm. and lard. <laughs> do you know what i mean like they weren't carrying macros and drinking <laughs> yeah. and shakes and, and yet they were still doing all their stuff so then you, you have to turn around and think are we devolving or are they were they onto something that we've just lost touch with, you know, a little bit? Because in theory, you should be miles ahead. Yeah. You know, in general, we are. The average trainee is considered yeah. stronger now, but there was obviously yeah. something to what they were yeah. doing. And then the other incredible thing is that most of the really impressive people at this time, you know, we're talking like 60s backwards. Most of them are like multi-sport athletes, you know? You know, a lot of the people who were competing at mm. this universe were competing for the U.S. Olympic team or competing in the early 
powerlifting competitions or in strongman or all that type of thing or you know even if you mm-hmm. go further you've got like circus performers as well yep. you know who were performing yep. every day maybe twice or three times a day doing all these crazy which you know yeah. we don't look at that now and go you can't do that you'll burn out <laughs> right you're gonna get hurt Just, yeah man there's gotta be mm-hmm. something there so that that's was the premise behind it is that there's a lot of methods that have been lost to time i think in general and a lot of methods that maybe people are scared to implement now especially from a strength perspective just because they don't know how to utilize them so things like heavy sure super maximal holds isometrics and things like that these were all things that were being done in the 60s and backwards i mean like paul anderson invented the progressive range of motion training by hanging his squat bar from chains in his barn and by getting a hole to deadlift out of they went filling in the hole digging a hole yeah it was they just did it because they experimented and it worked but you know i think if you put those methods out there now people will realize there's a lot there's a lot to them that could be gained you know like everything, not everyone is going to benefit from a specific method. But I think there's definitely kind of a broad category of training methods, which in this scenario, like if we look at the 60s backwards, the goal was simply how many different ways can I lift heavy things without getting burnt out or injured? It really was. I mean, and yep. what they cared about was lifting mm-hmm. something off the floor or putting it over their head. You know, that was the two things they did. But any way that they could do that with more weight or lift more reps with the same weight, they did. You know, and that's where a lot of these methods were born from. Yeah. You know, that's why, like I said, the progressive range of motion yeah. training is like a perfect example of that. Like, just take the weight that you want to hit in three months and lift it now, but just lift it for like an inch and then work towards it. Yeah. And think the head. Yeah. Find a way you can yeah. lift it. And just get used yeah. to it. You know? And. I just think yeah. there's a lot there's a lot yeah. out there in terms of like what you could maybe classify them as like maximal or pure strength methods that right now we just don't utilize anymore. You know, if, even in methods like mm-hmm. you know, training systems that use maybe a wider variety of training methods, we still don't see a lot of them utilized. And again, I do think that's just from a lack of knowledge of how do I use them? How do I program an overcoming isometric or a functional isometric? Or how should I, how do I program super maximal holds and when? You know, I, I think people would do them, and I think yeah. people would see great benefit from them because they've been out of the public eye, if you like, for one better word, for so long. We just we don't even know where to start. So that's what we're trying to do with exactly show people what can be achieved in terms of strength and strength training methods, and how you can utilize these perhaps lost methods now, which are approachable to everyone because these methods were successful before steroids were even synthesized. You know. Exactly, they work. Yeah, because there was nothing else to muddy the water at the mm-hmm. time. You know, like I said, the steroids weren't synthesized. Right. They were eating bread and lard all day, and you know, working in fields <laughs> or factories and whatever. So if they could do these methods sensibly and progress well and achieve some of the feats that we yep. by these individuals at those times. Then there's no reason we can't do them now. Yeah, hundred so percent. I think it'll and open people's eyes. It's also, it, it'll open people's eyes and it's interesting how like, it's also a really good example of everything's a little bit cyclical in, in the fact that I would say particularly the isometric methods that are discussed in the book are seen as like cutting edge and new now. <laughs> and you guys are just kind of showing like, yeah, these guys were doing this stuff yeah. before, no, before exactly. now. And, you know, everything in human nature kind of goes through cycles, right? But 
yeah, it's so true. No one is inventing anything anymore. And that's not, I don't mean that to discredit anyone. It's just pretty much everything that works is probably done by now. To, you know, we may pawn mm-hmm. variations on a theme, but for the most part, yep. just focusing on some stuff and then forgetting that the other stuff was really good. And then that stuff comes back in the spotlight, like it's disappearing for 10 years. And everyone's like, oh my God, this works again. It's like, well, it's always worked. You just, the industry just forgot about it for a while. That's all. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, I had to uncover it. So, but your portion, uh, you think about the classic texts or the classic books that get referred to people about how do you lift? How do you learn to squat? How do you learn to deadlift? The What people would say is like the core lifts or the main lifts. And, you know, you, starting strength comes to mind and that's probably the most commonly recommended one. But like this is really impressive with how you laid it out with how you explained it with how you broke it down and so that is just a huge feature of the book that i think people are going to be really surprised by because again it, it it's kind of it's in there but that's the the focus is like the methods so to speak and they're going to find a lot of use out so that'll be something that i know i will be promoting as far as like hey you're learning these movements or you really want to refine these movements and things like that, here's actually a really great resource. But another step to this, and I, you kind of alluded to it earlier about how do you let people still find what works for them and find actually when you're talking about checking the boxes of a certain movement, the episode that released this week when we were recording this is on how do you teach exercises so that you give the individual ver- uh, a leeway to perform it while hitting certain KPIs, but not making everyone fit into a, the same box, which we know is not the greatest approach. And so we'll talk about some of that today spe- spe- uh, specifically, but the overarching topic we're going to talk about today is how do you go about choosing exercise or ex- exercise selection for strength gains, muscle mass gains, or just doing what's right for your own body in your own situation. So that's kind of the overarching topic today of individualizing what you can do from that standpoint. So Tom, just to get started here, big picture scope, what are like the big rocks or the main things people should be considering and looking at from this perspective? And then we can get into the specifics of, of each one of those. Just as a starting point, options may be sacrificed as we're recording the episode on the book. I do think that the exercises that you choose to perform probably the most critical part. Most training programs work, you know, they're all, as long as they're based on sound principles, like all training programs work, you just got to pick the one that actually motivates you to do it for long enough and work hard at it. But you can work really hard, a good program with the wrong exercises and get none of the results that you want. And then worse off, you can not, can you not progress, you can end up beat up, injured, so on and so forth. So exercise selection for me is probably the most important factor when I'm writing individualized programs in, for that reason, in that at the end of the day, different exercises will have a different outcome or stimulus for an individual based on a lot of factors, especially the portions, their kind of natural strengths and weaknesses. Obviously, you've got mobility factors, injury, syndrome, that type of thing. But you can't just make blanket statements like, 
bench presses, do pack exercises, because it's not for everyone. If you've got short arms, for example, bench press is pretty much a front delt and tricep exercise. If and if you've got a big rib cage, that's even more true, because then your range of motion is even shorter. It basically becomes a tricep exercise, whereas for someone like me with a long wingspan, bench press is a fantastic pack exercise. And if I wanted to use that as the main exercise to build up my pecs, then I would have good that you can't say that one exercise rules all for a certain purpose because that's not how it works as soon as mechanics change because the person changes stimulus of the lift changes so first off like i said their body proportions is going to play into that in a big way also just the end goal like the best exercises for strength and for hypertrophy are usually very different like a barbell deadlift from the floor is not really a great stimulus for hypertrophy for anyone Whereas a Romanian deadlift might be a fantastic choice for that person, dependent. And also just the type of the stage that they're at with their programming. Because although an exercise stays the same mechanically and does the same stimulus, regardless of what the sets and reps you're doing are, some exercises are better suited to lower reps and lower sets and lower volume. Some are better suited for higher reps, higher volume, etc. Just look at something like a, a front squat. It's a great strength exercise. It's going to be great quad hypertrophy exercise for some people if they're in a stage of their programming where they're working in the lower rep ranges. But like a set, sets of 15 to 20 on a front squat just doesn't make sense. It's going to be thoracic extensors and shoulder mobility and core bracing that's going to give out first every time before you've got a proper stimulus into the legs. So, you know, that's going to play a big role in it as well. And then also, even if you're just looking at a pure hypertrophy standpoint, again, as we, we were kind of talking before we went live, like there seems to be a lot of buzz right now around trying to find the absolute optimal exercise for every single muscle group in the body. And it's, you know, but the idea that there is one, I think is quite silly because, and a lot of people like to look at EMG studies first, and we, we all know that never tells the whole tale anyway. But like, what... If, let's say you want to train your triceps. There are benefits to loading the triceps in the stretch position. There are benefits to loading it more in the contracted position. But you can't achieve that with one exercise because no exercise is going to mac- is going to overload it in the stretch position and the contracted position. And then likewise, you know, let's right. say you take like a power lifter, for example, who's, you know, close to a competition, maybe like six weeks out, they're doing a lot of heavy pressing. If the tricep work that you would give them is going to be totally different to what you give for a bodybuilder who doesn't have any other real joint stress going on. And, you know, like a band press down for that power lifter might be the best option. Okay, it may not be the best stimulus, but in terms of the effect it's going to have on Mm -hmm. the joints and tendons, it could actually be rejuvenative for them, which for them is probably more important right now than something that provides a tiny bit more stimulus. And then there's the fact that, you know, things like band work or anything that's higher volume and creates a, a greater accumulation of lactic acid and stuff, that's a different hypertrophy stimulus to mechanical tension. So, again, the exercise that greater one is not going to be greater than the other. So, again, I think the idea that there is one optimal exercise for a certain muscle group just doesn't work. And, again, body proportions and everything will play into yeah. that anyway. So that is why I think that exercise selection ends up kind of making or breaking um, program. Now, when it comes to selecting ones that are probably best for that individual, body proportions are ideal because you can use them to really identify what their natural weak points and strong points can anyway. Um, 
even if you don't have the chance to do like a thorough assessment on them, you can generally know straight. If you have someone who has very long femurs, probably going to be weak in their quads. They're going to struggle with scoring patterns and so on and so forth. So even if you've got a client that maybe isn't that well educated or hasn't been training for a long time, they you, you don't need them to know that stuff, which could be super helpful as a coach, especially if you're working remotely with people and you're not in the gym with them every day. Just a basic body proportions analysis where they send you their wingspan and their leg length, to the height and stuff like that can give loads of really good information and can tell you how you can expect them to move straight away. So that would be a big sure. part of it. Like just to like use me as an example, like let's take the back squat. A back squat for someone with short legs, so like Christian, he has super short femurs. So when he squats down, He's super upright, lots of forward knee travel, loads of quad loading. He can get big quads just from back squatting. For me, back squat, when I, when I competed in full power, all back squat ever did was give me really big erectors and big ass because my legs are like 60% <laughs> of my height. So the amount of hip flexion I get in a back squat is mm. more than most people get in a deadlift. So for me, back squat is basically a deadlift with bar on my back. So that exercise doesn't give me leg development. Whereas something like a Frankenstein squat or a Zurcher squat where it's front loaded and you force more forward knee movement and less hip flexion, that's going to play a huge role in it straight away. And then the other part that comes into the, the exercise selection for me straight after that, then is just the stage that their training is at. So I coach a lot of competitive powerlifters, but also athletes from a lot of other sports. And at the end of the day, the end goal at the end of the training cycle, you know, whether it's 12 or 16 weeks or whatever, might be a certain performance on a certain lift or maximizing a certain capacity. And then from that point, you work backwards from mm -hmm. where the exercises become less similar from that end goal for you go away. So, you know, if you've got an athlete that you want front squatting heavy, you know, just before they go into season or whatever, then the block before their season, before they start front squatting heavy, it might be something like a Frankenstein squat. And then the block before that, it could be something like a Zurcher split squat, so something that allows more load. And then back again from might be mm. something like a dumbbell front foot split squat. They're all more quad dominant versions of a squatting pattern, but they're all going to increase in load and they're going to increase in specificity as you work towards the end of the training cycle where the test or the assessment etc is going to take place and then the third characteristic that really comes into it then is really based off the lifters feedback or the athletes feedback and how it feels to them because a big part of being strong and performing well is very simply staying injury free and being able to do all this stuff long enough to actually get strong you know, if you can't lift for eight to ten years then you're probably not going to get to the upper echelons, if you like. And that, you know, regardless of whether you're a powerlifter, you're a strongman, a football player, whatever, it's even more important if you're an athlete. Because if you get injured in the gym then you, and you can't play, then that's even worse, right? So the yeah. feedback from the lifter yep. about what lifts feel natural, what lifts don't make them feel beat up, don't put on particular joint stress, all that type of thing, then gets put into play because that's going to determine what lifts you can do with regularity, with heavier loading or with higher volume. And that's generally going to be your more successful path. Like, yeah, front squatting in theory might be a better exercise for this person. But if trying to hold a front rack position just messes up their wrists and their elbows, 
do you really want to make them spend an hour every session mobilizing their shoulders and their wrists? Like, say they're a football player. Like, they're only going to be in the gym a few hours a week. You don't want to spend half of that mobilizing their wrists and their shoulders. Or can you just give them, or can you just give them a heel exactly. elevated SSB yeah. squat or a Frankenstein squat instead? And they can just get straight under the bar and do almost the same thing with five minutes of warm-up. And that, that's usually the determining factor is how long does it take them to warm up. If they tell me it takes them like 10 to 15 minutes to warm up for an exercise, most of the time I don't want to do it with them. It's it, that simple. And then for sure. if they're in a scenario where they're a strength athlete and it's a lift they have to do, then very simply we work around the variations and then generally put that competition and lift closer to that time. So just as an example, I've got a guy who broke British deadlift record the other week who has a tiny wingspan. He's like six foot four, six foot five. But short wingspan. So he has the absolute worst builds deadlift out. So he pulls off the box all year round until like six weeks. Because huh. deadlifting yeah. from the floor is so stressful to him that he can do basically no volume on it. He yeah. can do like maybe two or three sets and he's done. And that's not because his form's bad or he's not acclimatized. It's just from a leverage point of view, it's a very stressful movement. Whereas you give him a block pull just below the knee or maybe like yeah. the shin, he can do volume on it and he's going to build his posterior chain off that just fine. So long as he's squatting and stuff like that, he's going to build up his quad strength. So that's not going to be a problem. He needs to do just enough deadlifting from the floor before his comp that he basically tunes back into the technique and his skill level is good enough and then he can go do it on the day. And that's, that, I think, is a big thing that we see in powerlifting especially is that people really like to over-specialize and they get scared of going away from the main movements. But there's a time for specialization, and that's called mm-hmm. lift. And that's when you do competition lifts a lot, right? Like when low-bar squatting <laughs> yep. was kind of first invented, <laughs> people would just do it for like the last four weeks because it would allow them to put 10, 20 kilos on their squat. The rest of the year round, they all squatted high bar because it didn't beat them up, and it, and it built a stronger person. And I guess that's how I like to see. Mm-hmm. I, I coach strength athletes and sports athletes very similar in that for most of the season to me, a strength athlete is basically an athlete, like sports athlete who I just need to be really strong. They're all going to do squat patterns, hinge patterns, and press patterns mm-hmm. anyway. And then it's, you know, it's 12 weeks out, eight weeks out, whatever, when they start to really train like a powerlifter, if that makes sense. Because I think a lot of people don't last yeah. very long in the sport because they, that's the thing they don't do. They just do the be a powerlifter thing on cycle and repeat. And their box of movement skills, if you like, or exercise skills is so small that you just run into overuse injuries and you know, yeah. balances and that type of thing. And people then just don't last. So I, th- I think a big part of it as well is being confident enough in your exercise selection that you're, you're willing to step away from the tried and tested and know that they will if you pick the right ones, they will feed back into them with the time and make you stronger on them. 100%. Yeah, and, and just having the long game view, is it makes that a lot easier. And if you're always doing the same thing, just day in, day out, month in, month out, that's t- you're, you're typically going mean, to run into, run into the issues there. System, for a lot of people, things that people forget <laughs> about like that is that Bajiev, when he when he was doing that, he had like he had like a conveyor belt of lifters, and if like so, he was just like, right, this is the program mm. we're doing. Thirty guys go, and if twenty eight of them burn out, didn't matter because <laughs> as long as he had two or whatever that it worked for, mm-hmm. that's fine. 
those are yeah. and it, you know not to criticize but like that is i think was also a little bit the issue like maybe like shiko programming is people got drawn to that because it was successful and shiko is incredibly mm. successful I'm, I'm not taking away from him in that regard at all but when you have a lot of people coming to you which he did you, have, you know people said to him to coach when you have a big pool coming in then you can have your own system where it's like this is how we do things because it doesn't actually have to work for everyone you know and that's fine that's how you run a program like that not being critical mm. of those coaches what i'm saying is most of us work in a scenario where we're working one-on-one with people who have their own individual goals. They are their own self-contained project. It's not, I have 60 clients and I need two of them to do well. It's, we need all 60 of them to progress towards yeah. their own goals because that's the nature of the industry and how you work. So you can't get boxed in then because just like no one exercise works for everyone, no one training system is going to work for everyone. Like I said, I'm not being critical of those coaches. I'm just saying 99% of coaches don't work in the same context as to what they worked in. So then your approach has to be different. And that's where, you know, like the exercise selection, the individualization of the program really, yeah. really comes into it because I think a, a, a good coach has to have a big toolbox because you need one if you're going to actually be able to be successful yeah. with a wide variety of people. You can't pick and choose your clients in 99% of scenarios. So you need to be educated enough to know enough systems that you can cover the most bases when you clients that you're going to come in with contact. Yeah. When I was a team sport strength coach, stuff like that was on the, in the back of my mind all the time. And I'm thinking like, you know, I'm writing this program for this team of 30 to 110 athletes there's no way they should all be on the same program <laughs> they probably shouldn't be on the same split they shouldn't have the same movement selection their volumes should be different and i wanted to do all that no i, I just couldn't just logistically with you know i was a, i had a teaching load i had six teams and that was like a big source of stress for me because i always felt like i wasn't doing it to the best that i could be done like when you're in that situation, you, you do a lot on the fly. Like the athlete comes to you and maybe they do have a past history of something or a, actually I was going to ask, I'm, I'm going to work this question. I want to ask you, you know, there were times when for no identifiable reason that I could see, and you know, I'm not going to say I, I, there's a lot I don't know. So I could, there could have been some reason I just couldn't identify, but an athlete might come to me and <laughs> an athlete might come to me and just be like, coach, this movement doesn't feel good or it hurts this area of me, like my back or my knees or whatever. Can you watch me? I'd watch them. I would check, okay, are they doing things that jive with their body proportions? Things like that. Are they hitting the KPIs of the movement? And there'd be times where I'm like, I honestly can't see any from a form perspective an issue here. And yet I want to respect the fact that you are apprehensive about this. You have a history of it. I'm that way. I'm that way with, with some movements. I knew that I am that way personally. Have you run into those scenarios before? And if you have, what was like your approach to trying to like figure like your detective approach to figure so out what might be happening? Like, you don't want your athlete to be in, in, in from like a coaching perspective. It's like, <laughs> then you're like, okay, something's off, and I have no idea, but mm -hmm. it looks good. 
So I think then you have to start really kind of digging into it. And, you know, as a coach, yeah. that can be really interesting. You, then you can actually start to discover stuff you didn't know, right? With a specific movement, my, my first step is to usually, obviously they've expressed what the problem is when in the movement it arises, because that, that will tell us to a degree, is it present at all loads? You know, so is it load specific? Then my next movement usually okay. is to have them try different variations of that movement pattern too. Just to use a simple example, like going from a back squat to a front squat, or from like back squat maybe into like half squat or a pin squat. What variations don't cause the issue? And then you have to determine what hmm. what internally, perhaps internally, is happening differently on that variation that does cause an issue. One does, and that usually helps you piece together then what's going. So like. I've had, just as an example, like a scenario I've had is guys really common with like super heavyweight guys, for example, bench pressing, always getting shoulder pain, always getting shoulder Front delts, primarily, and you look mm. at their form, their wrist alignment, elbow alignment, their setup itself, it's, you know, they, they're good lifters. There's, there's nothing inherent wrong. So but they're always complaining their shoulders are in pain. Their posture is good. Now, well, the time, when you drill down into it, what it ends up being is that, and this tends to be guys with shorter arms, and now become relevant now when we're actually going to fly. Sure. It's that they have massively dominant front delts and tight pecs. So the movement looks fine. They can achieve the alignment at the bottom of the lift without a problem, but it's on the end range of their range of motion for their pecs because they're tight. So their pecs are in a mechanic position, and they're also just hardwired to use their front delts for all their pressing because that's essentially what a short arm So you get into a position now where when you're at the bottom of the bench press, even though all the alignment is good, pecs are being inhibited because they're in their very stretched position, which they're not used to, which is down-regulating their recruitment, and they're going to basically front delt press it military press it off their chest so <laughs> then you go into a scenario where you have to do two things you have to not only loosen off the pecs but also get them better at recruiting them in the stretch position so a good kind of fix it kit for that would be something like a dumbbell press loaded stretch where they spend like three minutes in the bottom of a dumbbell press rowing dumbbells into them to stretch the pecs get the pecs not only used to being in that stretch position but actually going considerably than they will be stretched in the bottom of that bench press and then doing <laughs> pressing variations that take the front delt out of the equation as much as humanly possible so that they get used to pushing with their pecs and then reintegrating them into the bench press pattern after that so the point I'm trying to make with that is a lot of the times things look great on the surface, but the actual like internal firing for I don't want to use like fancy terms to understand, but mm. like what's actually going on internally from like a wiring perspective isn't always good. So that's usually my first two then is like like okay, say it's right. like a, a back squat or whatever and it's always hurting their knee. Are they actually able to feel their hamstrings on the way down? Are they able to use them as a stabilizer? 
maybe they're not. So maybe their positioning is absolutely fine at the bottom. The hamstring is actually not really contracting and working isometrically very well. So then it's not really providing any active stability for the knee joint, and that's why the knee hurts at the bottom, if that makes sense. So usually what in those scenarios, sure. it's to do with like yeah. an inter- or intramuscular coordination firing thing or a mobility thing, but then the mobility yeah. ends up causing that yeah. same issue anyway. So that that can be good fun as like a, a testing procedure to see why those things happen. That's often why it usually <laughs> happens. So then doing other variations that put the joints through similar ranges of motion, but have different firing patterns can help. Because then you can know that like, okay, if you can go to the bottom of the front squat, mm. which is lower than the bottom of the back squat, the mobility isn't an issue. You're able to, to stabilize those joint angles, etc. So something is different about the back squat. What's different about the back squat? Well, the hips are flexed more. What's the what's that going to do to the movement? Okay, so something is off related to how we stabilize more hip flexion. And it's down the rabbit hole you go as a coach. That's usually my yeah. process: is play around yeah. with different movement patterns and then see what hurts and what doesn't in relation and use that to kind of twig in on what the exact issue with is with that specific variation. I think you might have just identified the new superpower that I want. It's like the x-ray vision that can identify right. muscle pi- firing Visual patterns energy. immediately. <laughs> your quads are only lit up to yellow and your hamstrings are red. Your My x-ray thermal imaging here is picking up something different. I've never really heard anyone like mention that aspect of, of things before. So yeah, those are all really great points. I want to go back. To, I do want to go back to body proportions for a bit because this is getting more out there, I think. And people are just starting to realize and understand that people are built differently. Hopefully gone are the days where if somebody watches you squat, they constantly cue you to get your chest up because they understand you are going to be a more forward flexed you know, squatter than Christian, or I've heard you talk about your wife who does have the short femurs. So she's going to be more upright, but give coaches and trainers some things that they can look at. So you mentioned assessment earlier of measuring some things. If you can, can you go over some of the things that you measure and some, then, and then trainers and coaches can either use that for themselves or, or with their clients. Anyone who's got like 51, 52% of the mm-hmm. leg length or more, it's going to be long-legged. Anyone who's like 46, 47% and below is going to fall into the, the short leg category. And people who are in that in-between bracket generally are reasonably well-balanced. You can get more nitpicky and then start looking at the, the femur and the tibia ratio. Basically, the femur is the more important kind of determiner of how you will move. So you can have kind of normal mm. length legs but if your femur is long because your tibia is short, you'll move more like a long-legged person. So the, the long-legged rules kind of apply more to you than that of say a short-legged individual. And then vice versa, the longer your tibia is, the yeah. more you move like a, a short-legged individual. And then you can do the same with wingspan. So, I mean, the ape index is, is reasonably well-known. A lot of people know about that. But basically, just compare your, your wingspan to your height. Again, people who are generally like four centimeters above their height or longer like a long wingspan and then anyone who's who can't doesn't have their height or have it less 
then is going to be short arms. And again, you go into the same category there where if your wingspan is kind of equal to your height or maybe like just say three centimeters more than your height, you kind of fall in that middle zone. And again, what matters most then is the relationship between your upper arm and your mm-hmm. lower arm, basically how long humerus is. If you have a longer humerus, that's going to make you move more like a long-armed person. If you have a short humerus, that's going to make you move more like a short-armed person. And from those two things, you have a lot of information. Now, a person who has long legs or maybe average legs with a long femur is going to be naturally posterior chain dominant, so going to be good at hip hinge patterns because they use their shorts. If you have long legs, you have to have a short torso because you have to be made of something. So the, the torso is naturally very stable, even yep. short. <laughs> so when you flex from the hip and the torso is the moving part, it's very stable. So the body will then tend to favor moving through the hip and using the torso to move things. So your natural inclination will be to try and do everything through the hip. And then over time, the, the hip and the posterior chain becomes the dominant moving factor, the strong, strong two compared to the quads. So then when you're training that individual, they're probably going to be very strong on deadlift patterns, relatively weak on squatting patterns, and they're going to be naturally weak through their quads. So straight away, you have a good idea of what variations to use and maybe how much volume you need to assign to each of those patterns. Like in my normal kind of programming, someone comes out with long legs, depends how long exactly they are and what their goals are. They might do anywhere between like 50 to 100% more squatting than they will deadlifting because they don't need to. They're, they're naturally mm. strong in that position anyway. And actually, a lot of the time, if you're talking like a strength athlete deadlift, they're going to be weak through their quads and breaking off the floor anyway. So focusing more on the squats when you're going to help them. And then you also know they have a natural inclination to try and use their for, sure. for everything. So then when you're picking variations to work on their quads, you have to take into account that they're going to try and cheat and turn it into a good morning at every single opportunity that you can imagine. So even like a front, even like a front squat, <laughs> a squat can be good mm-hmm. morning really fast if you let people do it. Again, long legs will fall into them. So that's where, mm-hmm. as a coach, you need to make mm-hmm. sure not only are they performing those movement pants correctly, but are they performing them, sorry, are they performing the right movements, but are they performing them correctly? Like, are the hips and shoulders rising out of the bottom of the squat together, which means that they're pushing evenly through the anterior and posterior chain? Or are the hips constantly shooting up in space and then moving forward and turning it into like a, a hinge pattern squat? Because you can do a front squat like that all day and not get a strong quad. Yeah. So the exercise and achieving its end goal then. So not only does it tell you right. where their natural weak, it also tells you where their natural biases are and how they'll want to move. So you can create variations then that basically force them to move in ways they don't So like the Frankenstein squat is a great example of that purely because since your hands aren't on the bar, you can't tip full. So you, you can't good morning a Frankenstein squat with the bar so that yep. might be a great version, but not just might be a great variation for them. Yep. Not just because it targets their quads more, but because it makes them do it properly. And then on the other end of the spectrum, then you've got your short leg individual is going to be, yep. you know, the whole opposite of that. These are going to be your natural squatters, like we mentioned, Christian and my wife. They're going to get good quad development and leg development in general just from squatting, but their posture change is generally weak. They're also going to want to use their quads on just about everything. So they're going to need to put more effort into their posterior chain work. 
again, anywhere between like 50 and 100% more, maybe depending on how long their arms are. But then not only that, you're going to have to give them movements where they can't cheat using their quads. So say you gave them like a crap bar deadlift, they're going right. to sink their hips down and get their torso up and put the, shove their knees forward every single time. You know, as soon as it gets hard and it's heavy, they're going to default <laughs> yep. to what they feel strongest at, and that can be that. Whereas if you give them something like uh, vert pull, which is basically a, a Romanian deadlift where your calves are against something behind you, does that make sense? Your, your calves are supported from behind, so you can okay. lean back. Yep. So it's, it's basically like the hinged version of a sissy squat, basically. You give them something like that, now their calves are pressed back against the pad, yep. and they can artificially sit back more. It, they can't use their quads now. It has to become a, a pure hip hinge because of something like that. I know that's maybe an extreme example, but things like stiff leg deadlifts like that, they will still try to bring their quads into it. So not only is it, again, it's important that you make sure they're doing it properly and using tools and variations that make them do it properly. So using, doing Romanian and stiff leg deadlifts, for example, people with short legs, it's really useful to put like a band around their hip that holds back. So a resistance mm-hmm. band around their hip that's tight mm-hmm. behind them. It gives them proprioceptive feedback to hinge the hips back. It also allows them to hinge back more comfortably so that they then bias that movement pattern a bit more. And it takes away the inclination sure. to try and bias the quads into the movement there, even though it's a hip hinge. So, again, how they want to move is also a really important part of strengthening their points because everyone cheats. And, you know, it's a subconscious thing a lot of the time where we'll always go to where we feel mm-hmm. strongest. So, as a coach, you need to. Put, in the safest way possible, you need to put them in positions where you force them to go into those weaker areas and do the weaker movement patterns that they naturally want to. Now, when it comes to, you kind of mentioned yeah. torso length there as part of the, the leg length thing. Obviously, like we said, you have to be made of something. So if you've got long legs, you've got a short torso and, and vice versa. If you're a person with long legs and a short torso, great. Your your core is probably not going to be that much of an issue. It's it's a short lever. It's going to be naturally stable. So you're probably not going to have to do a lot of lower back work, designated core work and stuff like that. It's very rarely, if ever, going to be that fails. Whereas if you're on the other end of the spectrum, you've got short legs and a longer torso, that's now a bigger lever through the spine to stabilize. You're going to run into problems where a lot of the time, say on your squat, it's not going to be the ability going to be the ability of your legs to create the force to move weight. It's going to be your core's ability to stabilize you enough to put weight, the force into the bar. So the shorter your legs are, generally speaking, the more direct core work you have to do. Basically, the more work you have to do on improving your bracing strength, and the more work you're going to have to do on your spinal erectors because again, they're going to go through more shear stress because the second is longer. So sadly, those individuals tend to be more prone to back sure. and things like that just because it's a more unstable lever so it's i always as a preventative measure like to give those people designate core and lower backward maybe more decompressive work because they're more sensitive to just overall accumulation of compression mm-hmm. and then even though they need to work on hip hinge patterns that doesn't mean doing really heavy compressive hip hinge patterns all the time so you know something like a zurcher good morning is a great hip hinge pattern because of the load, you know, the way it's loaded. It's also a great core and an ab exercise, but it also requires considerably less load than something like the regular RDL one. 
So we're making them work on their posterior chain strength. Sure. We're making them work on their core and their bracing strength, whilst we're also not putting too much stress through their, their lower back and their core, because we know that it's just more sensitive compared to someone who naturally has a short torso. So that needs to be taken into consideration as well. Then when it comes to the upper body and the wingspan, again, this is where like the whole idea of you should do more pulling than pushing just doesn't necessarily pay dividends because if you have a long wingspan, <laughs> which like I said, like mm. if your wingspan is four or five centimeters or so or more than your height, you're naturally going to be a really strong puller. A long arm is a great lever to pull things towards the body with. Yeah. There's a reason that all Olympic swimmers have massive wingspans. It gives you really good levers to pull the arm through the water and displace more water, right? So that's naturally going to mean that you're going to need less back work because you, you, that's the movement you're naturally strong at. Those muscles have favorable attachments and levers to work with. So saying to someone with long arms that like, you always need to do more pulling work may not, may not be true. I get where it's coming from in that a lot of us are stuck at desks and stuff nowadays, but probably do need to do pulling work for maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. But for those individuals still doing like 50 to 100% more pulling work is, is going to leave them relatively very weak in their pressing movements and under, underdeveloped in them. They probably still need mm. to do more pressing than they do pulling, despite, you know, maybe the biases of our, our lifestyle now. So that rule really doesn't ring true unless you have short arms, where the opposite is true. But if you're a long arm lifter, you're naturally going to be quite pec dominant. So like I kind of said in the intro, like for me, bench press is a good builder. It's great. That's going to be the, prim the primary stimulus from it. But my front delts and triceps, not so much. And I'm going to be weak in the top half bench because my pecs sure. are strong. Even though mechanically speaking, the bottom half of the bench press is a weaker point because my pecs are a relative strong point. I can bench press off my chest just as much as I can press off a pin at the midpoint. Because it's right on the point where the weakest stuff takes over, <laughs> you know, and that, mm -hmm. that's probably always going to be pretty much. So sure. for those individuals, they're going to naturally develop their pecs very well. So they probably don't need to do a lot of designated pec work. They're going to need to do more front delt work, a lot of tricep work. The longer your arms are, the more direct arm work you need to do. Because the longer your arms become, the more the core-based or torso-based muscles have greater leverage and the worse leverage the elbow flexors, extensors have. So someone who has naturally long arms like me can get very strong on pressing and pulling movements but get very little arm development from it. So they're going to generally need a lot of isolated arm work to overcome that. They're not, again, the adage of like, you'll just get big arms if you do bent over rows and bench presses or whatever is not going to be true for that individual. They're going to need to do designated arm work, providing, of course, they, their goal is to have a physique with certain arm development or even to just be well-rounded and strong. You know, like they're going to naturally weaken the plans with their triceps. Sure. They're going to need to do work on them, solve it. Now, when it comes to pulling work for that person, if you have long arms, your back is, is naturally your strong point, so you don't need to do as much direct work for it. But we mentioned swimmers earlier. If you look at Olympic swimmers, they're obviously incredibly strong pulling actions, but they're, they're like that, right? They're, they're lads. Incredibly well developed. But upper back, yep. traps, rhomboids, really not so much. And that's not necessarily actually a base of what they do. It's not just because huh. swimming is quite lat dominant. It's because 
when with longer arms, the lats have the best leverage of everything. They have the best universe to work on. So the lats are going to be like the predominant yeah. pulling muscle with all the pulling that you do. So if you've got long arms, you probably don't really need to do any specific lap work possibly at all. Like even your, your seated rows and horizontal rows are going to be really lap dominant anyway. You're probably going to need to focus quite a lot on doing something to just take that out as much as humanly mm-hmm. possible. So it might be like really wide grip rows, pulling higher sternum. It's going to be direct trap, rear delt, and rhomboid work, like a lot of like shrug variations. I think high pulls are probably the best version of a pull you can do as a long arm lifter to grow the upper back if, if you're proficient at them. But you're going to need like straight arm pull downs and regular lap pull downs. You're probably going to need to do very little, sure. if none of. Then in on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the short arm guys and girls. Again, that's just flipped. They're going to be in natural presses. They're going to be the people that love military press, bench press, etc., because they perform well on them. This is where the whole pulling more than you press average does come in because they have short arms are great levers to push things away from the body with, which is great, but that's going to leave you very susceptible to having a kyphotic posture. So you're going to be naturally more inclined to be in kyphosis. So you're going to have to be more aware of your posture in general and do things to work around that. And yes, you're going to have to do considerably more back work then to counteract that and also just work on what will be a natural weakness because the levers are pulled. And again, it's also flipped in terms of what muscles are the predominant pulling muscles. Person with short arms, you, you'll generally, if you look at you know a reasonably well-developed person with short arms, They'll generally have big arms, probably decent front delts and big traps. So they look great in a shirt, basically. They fill out a shirt really well. But that's also because when you've got short arms, the traps, the rhomboids, and the rear delts have better levers than the lats do. So they become the predominant pulling muscles then. So then you end up in the opposite scenario where most of the pulling work you do, not only Mm -hmm. do you need to do a lot of it, you also need to bias it then a lot towards lat-specific movements. And as we spoke about, they're going to do everything they can to work away from working them. So that's where you really have to go into things like pullovers and straight arm pull downs because you need to use movements where you just can't allow the traps and the rhomboids to take over. Otherwise, the first thing they're going to do is move most of the way down. So that's just kind of, I probably rambled on a bit mm-hmm. too much there, I'm sorry. But that's kind of like a quick overview of what you can do as a coach when you get the simplest version of the body proportions assessment and then what you can do in terms of programming then just based on that and and nothing else. But like I said, I think especially if you're working with clients remotely, that can give you a lot of really good info to go off and kind of build the skeleton of your program almost on its own, which can be an incredible useful tool. Yeah, I mean, so I want to highlight something really quickly. So any, any student who might be listening to this if you're currently taking biomechanics or anatomy and you're like, why are we learning about levers? Tom just told you why. Like, you know, if you didn't catch it, how many times he used lever, leverage, like these things all inform your strength levels, like where you're weak, where where you're not weak, what muscles are going to predominate. Because the muscles are dumb. They just do things. They just can and your body will, meaning like they just contract and body's going to find the most efficient way to do something based on its anatomy and based on those levers. So if you're like, why are we learning about this? How you move this is and why. 
It's a strong one. What's prone to injury? What we age train? Yep. Um, just because it's what your body, mm-hmm. just because it's what your body standardizes to, yeah. The levers it was dealt doesn't necessarily mean it's optimal. It just means it's optimal with the with the hand that it was dealt. You know, you know, like if you, usually if you someone exactly, exactly. Usually if you want yeah. someone, gotta, to it's got to move. You got to move somehow. Yeah, you have to have. The, the strength and the, the muscular control, neurological control, etc. There beforehand, you can't get a guy to start. So let's just take you know, if we're using athletes as an example here, like you've got a guy who, when he jumps and he lands, for example, he's always very flexed from the hip. You can't just get him to land and jump from an upright. Say he's like a volleyball player or whatever, right? You can't just expect him to jump from a super upright position because that's a movement mm-hmm. plan that is achieved by being very quad dominant and if you need that person to jump like that you've got to do the work to get them quad dominant which is going to be mm. really hard if they do have long legs but you can do it i mean i've seen it plenty of times where like you take on guys girls or athletes who have like previous history in sports that maybe they don't tell you about and they don't move like you expect them to and you're like oh this is not this is weird it's not right but so like you, you get get that person squatting and jumping and they're really upright despite the fact long leg hmm. and then they tell you that they used to be a sprint cyclist and you're like right so you have spent hours upon hours just being quotes on everything you do from training the crap out of them in the gym and now you move like a quad yep, dominant yep. person but, <laughs> cool. but the movement pattern can't come first the change often can't come hmm. first you have to give the body the tools and the strength and so on and so forth to be able to do the moving pattern in that way to begin with so yeah, that's why yeah. that is really important because physics kind of governs everything. Right. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of things you're, you're saying just again jive with Merrick Lincoln's episode because we talked about constraints, and really that's we're we're talking about individual constraints of a person, and like basically you're talking about we are changing the options or the movement solutions available to our movement and you have to if you want to see a change in in someone's movement patterns or change in in the movement if that option does not exist we have to provide that option and we can do that through training which is fun as a coach and it's good and man you've given a ton of, of great information today i will point people to a recent webinar that you did with christian for t nation if people really want to dive into more of the body proportion stuff and what does that mean for exercise selection and where someone might be weak and, and all that, you give you dive in pretty deep there. Like Christian does, if I remember right, he he did like an hour on hypertrophy, and then you come in and you do kind of this section where it's more looking at the body proportion and the the biomechanics and things like that. So if that's still up. You know, when you listen to this, it's on the T Nation. Yeah. I might, I'll, you know what? I'll just put it in, in the show notes right and then you can have access to that too. Pretty soon. It's the first hit Google. They posted it in the T Nation forum. Yep. And then also, you've obviously got the video, but then before that, there's the PDF there that you can download. So all the slides that we present and the webinar, you can download them, make your own notes, and just have your own copy for your own learning. Yes. Awesome. So, Tom, what else you got going on? Like we talked about the book, is there anything uh, else you have yeah, coming so up? Any we're anything that listeners should know about? Um, I'm working on my presentation yep. at Swiss. 
by the end of October. Got to get the green light from Ken first. I'm hoping to give my talk on specialization training, basically how you can train athletes and strength athletes and bodybuilders even using like concentrated blocks where you focus primarily on one thing or one lift or two body parts or a facet of performance like power or speed and how you can cycle through specific blocks like that and still end up with a balanced program by using a very imbalanced approach if that makes sense uh, that becomes really interesting when you start dealing with uh, <laughs> people who are made, like elite level or, or reasonably high level because they get to the point where they can't do enough training to make everything better at once because they just can't they can't do that much volume because it requires that much volume to get better so you have to sure. start picking your battles so that's where specialization training comes but most of your investment into one facet that you want to improve, everything else goes on maintenance mode, and then you can have like a cyclical program work on everything going through that. Outside of that, I'm doing a seminar with Christian in Ottawa at the end of September. We have an advert out for that. I can't remember where it is off the top of my head. If people get in touch with me, I can send them to the link for that. We, we have a joint two-day seminar uh, in a gym in Ottawa. Sure where we're going to be discussing all this type of thing, programming, and like a lot of the stuff that we covered in the webinar, way more going into Christian's neurotyping system, all the different programming methods that we use with our online clients and with the athletes that we coach at Etsy Army and all that type of thing. And also I'll be doing practical sessions as well. We'll go through correct form the, the main lifts as well, which is, is always good fun to do with people. And then outside of that, man, we're just... Doing our thing, writing articles. I've got, I started writing articles for First Attachment. I've got, that's Justin Harris's company. They've, they're quite new. So I started writing for them. I've released okay. the first one for them on basically the mechanisms of hypertrophy. So basically what actually causes hypertrophy. And then the second article I'm writing is going into mm. how we, the principle of maximally effective reps and basically how we can use that to govern how much training volume that we actually have to do. So the first one is up, the next one will be up in, in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. We'll look out for that for sure. And no, Tom, man, I just really appreciative of your time today. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.